0: Chapter 8 of First Samuel, as we continue through the book of Samuel, and we're coming up to a very important chapter, a very important passage in First Samuel. This is where everything turns, everything kind of hinges on this chapter as we move from Israel as a time of tribes and judges, now into this monarchy, and them demanding a king from Samuel and from God you might be asking, you may not be used to really studying God's Word or hearing sermons from the Old Testament. Why, again, do we study the Old Testament? Why do we read from it? Why do we preach from it? Well, the Old Testament, as, as old and as foreign as it may sound, thousands of years ago these, these events took place, it's really our story. It's our story as believers, as God's people. God's people started as, as a nation, as families, and then it and it branched out and it, and, and it grew and it turned, and in and Jesus' time, it came, it came into the world of the Gentiles. And so, not only that, but it's who we are. As we read about uh, these Israelites, we see ourselves. We see our own inclinations. We see our own sins. It's who we are. Um, but it's also what we need. As we see God's grace and his favor poured, up, poured out upon them in, throughout the Old Testament, it's what we need. And it anticipates. This bigger story of Jesus' coming, that as we read the Old Testament, it points to Jesus. That's why these aren't just separate stories of just moralistic tales of how how to behave and how not to behave. It's meant to point us forward to the coming King, Jesus, who would save us from our sins. That's how I'm approaching every text, every time I come to preach. It's to point you guys to our Savior. That's why we read these stories in the Old Testament. It's our story. And it's one big story. It's a bit of a longer text, but I will ask you if you're able to please stand for God's Word, the reading of God's Word as our tradition to give honor to His Word. we will be reading all of chapter 8. This is God's Word. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. And they took bribes and perverted justice. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him, and he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards, and give it to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your male servants and female servants, the best of your young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. And he will take a tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we shall also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. (laughs) Father, may my words... And our meditations together on your word be acceptable in your sight. You bless us, Father, as we read, as we hear these stories, and as we see Christ in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Americans, we already know how this story will end. Even if you had no knowledge of the Bible, knew nothing about the Bible, but you're an American, you already know how this story is going to end with this whole business of kings, right? We don't like kings. We do not like kings. Kings are a bad idea. In fact, that's how we, uh, that's how we exist as a nation. We, we rejected a king over across the pond. And, and so we know going into this, this is going to be rocky. This is not going to work out for Israel to have a king. Actually, even if you look at, at our history, and early days, the founding of our nation... And if you, knew, if you know anything about just Western civilization, you should be astounded at the decision, we should all be astounded at the decision George Washington made to not continue his terms again and again and sort of make himself a de facto king, right? That was just unimaginable that it happened because history shows us that it's very hard to remove people out of power once they have it. And so we're thankful, aren't we? And so we should be telling the Israelites, you should form a a democratic republic. That's the answer to all your problems, right? That's not the answer. That's not the answer that God gives us either. You see, kingship was always in the plans for God's people. God's promise, when you go all the way back to Abraham in Genesis, chapter 17, the promise that God made to Abraham contained the promise that he would be made into nations. And And God said, kings shall come from you, Abraham. But there would be one requirement for that king, whoever served as king of Israel, and that was to to serve and to submit to the king of kings. And to the degree that Israel's king would serve and submit to Israel's God, the nation would do well, but if not, the nation and the king would suffer the consequences of their disobedience. So we hear about kings in Genesis 17, but also in Deuteronomy, and Moses, when he's leading the people, in Deuteronomy 17, we read this that Moses would anticipate the day where they would have a king. It's from Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. He says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God's giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So, God's already allowing it. All the way back in Deuteronomy, we read that God is going to allow them to have a king. He says, You may indeed said a king, but you need to do it a certain way. It says, in verse, continue in verse 15, One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has, God has said to you, you shall never return to Egypt. He shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So there's this, um, there are limits to what he should do in the, in the nation. But also there's spiritual standards that this king must hold. Verse 18 of chapter Deuteronomy 17, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by all the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes. So he should be a man after God's own heart. He should know the law. He should be not only the military leader, the leader of government, but he should be a spiritual leader, this king. So the issue that we have in, verse, in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel is not their request per se that they want a king, but the issue is the motivation behind it. Why? are they asking for a king? What is compelling them to ask for a king? Well, we find a few reasons they give in the first couple of verses of chapter 8. So look at verses 1 through 3 with me. It says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn, Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways and turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So we see some issues, do we not, with Samuel at this point. He's, number one, he's getting old. He's getting old. So it, it harkens back to, to Eli. He was also old at the time, a former priest judge. And his sons were again wayward. Just as an aside, it's very hard to find a faithful father in all of Scripture. A father figure who did really well with his sons. Almost always, we see the sons going wayward and, and, and rebelling. It shows how Hard fatherhood is. But he has issues. Samuel has issues. His sons have issues. They are not holding up the standard of of how they should be leading as judges. And the elders are getting antsy, right? They're getting weary from this and they want something. They want something different. And just as we read these passages, we need to be reminded that that Samuel is probably the greatest leader since Moses and all of Israel. He's the greatest leader yet he doesn't meet the perfect standard that we all need for a leader, for an ultimate leader, and that God needs to save not only Israel but also him. And so they have some legitimate reasons, as the elders are saying, we want a king, but, but they're doing it in a way uh, that is not good. They're not trusting in the Lord and his provision, ultimately. And so the main idea of this text is that what we want often from God, is at odds with what God wants and plans to give us. And so we're going to see three things in this text. What we want from God, number one. Number two, what God wants from us. And number three, what God gives us. Number one, what we want from God. Number two, what God wants from us. And three, what God gives us. So let's first let's look at this idea of what we want from God. How our desires often go awry. Well, the first thing that we often want from God is we want methods. We want to change our methods instead of repentance. Dale Ralph Davis says in his commentary, we have a tendency to assess our problems mechanically instead of spiritually. We have a tendency to assess our problems mechanically. We try to, to tweak, to adjust, to change instead of addressing our problems spiritually. This is easy... If you you compare chapter 8 to chapter 7, the contrast is very great, and you see the difference. Go back to chapter 7 very quickly with me and look at the first couple verses. Actually, look at verse 2, the end of verse 2. From that day, the ark was lodged, and Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house lamented, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They understood their sin. They were humbled. They were repentant in chapter 7, but something's changed. Reading 1 Samuel is like being on a roller coaster. They do good one chapter, and they tank the next. They do good the next chapter, and then they go down again. We were riding high in chapter 7. They were humble. They were repenting. They were confessing. They were believing in God, and God defeated their enemies, and now we're going back down in chapter 8. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, When a person stops believing in God, they do not believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. When a person stops believing in God, they do not believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. When you stop looking to God for, for the source of your strength and salvation, you will then look to anything. In our day and age, in our culture, Many are are describing themselves spiritual but not religious. Even though people are are distancing themselves from the church, they're still very religious. They're still very spiritual. They're putting their trust in whatever they can to fulfill them. And in a similar way, we Christians sometimes struggle with not trusting in God, not going to Him directly, but instead changing our methods, changing um, how we live as believers. We want to change our disciplines, our processes, our lists, as we approach uh, January, it's very common, right, to, to create new lists of things you want to change, new goals. And those aren't always a bad thing to do. It's good to assess your life and see what you can change, how you can become more um, faithful. Gym memberships skyrocket, right, in January. And then they, then they go back down again in the summer. We always want to be changing things, tweaking our methods instead of going deeper and repenting, and going before God, exposing our heart to Him. New disciplines, new processes, new lists, those aren't always bad. They can sometimes be really helpful, but it needs to be led by heart change. It needs to be led by heart change. What do we else do we want from God? Often we want God to help us, but on our terms. We want God's help, but we want it to be on our terms. And that's what we see that that Israel is doing. In verse 5 and 6, they say, Behold, you are old, Samuel. Your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. We're rejecting you, Samuel. The the help that we have in you, Samuel, we don't want. In verse 6, it says, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Samuel was already judging. He was already leading Israel. He was what God had put him in that position. But they were rejecting that. They didn't want that kind of help. They wanted the help they wanted. Del Ralph Davis says, instead of looking to God for help, we're more interested in prescribing what form God's help must take. Have you ever said to yourself, God, I want your help. If it means I don't have to work very hard. I want your help if I, if I can just sit down and, and relax. Look at verse 20 of our passage. One of the reasons they give for wanting a king is that their king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We want him to do the work. Take that burden off of us. I want your help, God, but I don't want to lift a finger. Have you ever said, God, I want your help if it means I won't seem weird or different to other people? Have you ever said that to yourself? I want your help, God, if I can fit in with everybody else. That's another motivation that's going on here. Look again at verse 5. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And in verse 20, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. It's so much easier to blend into the culture than to stand in contrast to it. It's so much easier to just go with the flow. But that's not what we're called to were called to stand out. So Christian, I I had written in my notes, you may be ridiculed and mocked, and I erased it and said, you will. It's, it's true. You will be ridiculed and mocked for your faith in Christ. What? You don't believe in a woman's right to choose? To have control of her, her, her own body? That's, that's backwards. You're not living in a 21st century. What? You don't believe that... Um, Teenagers who aren't married can sleep with one another before marriage? You don't believe that? What are you, not living in today's world? What You, you give a, a tithe of all of your income to, the, to God's church? What You give away your money? Are you crazy? You've earned that money. That's yours. I was reading recently that the vast majority of all the giving of this past year was by Christians in our country. What, you believe in Jesus? You believe he's the only way to eternal life? Are you crazy? How, how backwards that is. You're going to hear that if you haven't already. And so we need to ask ourselves, where are we content to blend in? Where are we content to, to blend in to the rest of the culture? And if we do that, what are we compromising? What are we compromising? And you young people probably experience this the, the greatest right now. If you're in middle school or high school, th- those are the years you feel peer, peer pressure the most doesn't really go away. But what are you? What are you compromising to be popular? What are you compromising to be with the cool crowd? Don't do it. Don't do it. Stand fast on what God calls us to stand fast on. And when we think about what we want from God, sometimes he gives us what we want. But it's to our detriment but it's to our judgment. Look at verse 9. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the, way, the ways of the king who shall reign over them. God is allowing them, even with bad motivation, to get what they want. Sometimes when we ask things from God, it may not be in the right motivation, but he allows it, he listens, he, he answers that prayer to teach us, to teach us more about what we need from him. God gives us what we pray for, sometimes not to please us, but to reveal our need for him, and that's what he's doing with Israel. So let's look at some of the ways, uh, from verse 11 on, the way this king will act toward Israel. He said in verse 11, These, this will be the way of, of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before His chariot. So here we see conscription, that there's going to be a draft of the men of Israel. They're going to be taken from the homes and they're going to be forced to serve in the military. And in verse 12, we see a continuation. He will appoint for himself commanders of of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and make his implements of war and equipment of chariots. So they're, they're to grow and centralize the military and grow the king's wealth. In verse 13, we read that he'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. So he's going to take the women, the the daughters of of the nation and and into the royal courtly duties. In verse 14, we read that he's going to take your personal property for government needs without compensation. In verse 15, we read about a federal income tax. He's going to take your money. In verse 16, taking of property and assets And we see this again in verse 17. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. But lastly, the monarchy will remain. Look at verse 18. In that day you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. There's no going back. Once this monarchy starts, they will have a king all the way through the rest of the the Old Testament until the end of the exile. So these are what they're going to give up And he's telling them, this is what's going to happen. The government's going to get bigger. You're going to be taxed. But notice the ultimate theme of this king. He is going to take. He is going to take. He's going to take. Look at that repeated again and again through these verses. He will take, he will take, he will take. He's a king who's going to take from you. Last thing I'll say on this point of what we want Sometimes our solutions to what, to what our problems are can be clearly logical, but utterly godless. Clearly logical, but utterly godless. Del Ralph Davis says, Israel's request for a king was perfectly rational, yet God viewed it as a rejection of his kingship. It would strengthen them militarily and economically, but they would reject the source of all of their life. Israel was continuing to do what they'd always done, and that's reject the kingship of God. See what he said in verse 8? Read verse 8 again, according to all the deeds that they've done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're also doing to you. He, what he's saying is that Israel's doing what they've always done, and that's reject me, God says. And so as we think about that, what are some solutions we've, we've implemented in our life, in ministry maybe, that are logical, rational, but they're utterly godless. Sometimes I think about what the church has done in the name of evangelism and church growth where we tell God that He'll benefit from our success if we do this or that outreach, if we, if we um, do whatever we want just to get people in the door. He'll benefit, God. You'll benefit, God, and we'll be successful instead of saying, let's let God be successful. And we benefit from Him and what He tells us to do in ministry and in life. So that's the first idea, what we often want from God. Secondly, what God wants from us. What does God want from us? Well, this is a shorter point because He just wants a couple things. God is most interested in our repentance and obedience, not in our new message. And ultimately, God wants us to be reminded of two things. Our sin and His grace. And that's the overarching story of the Bible, isn't it? Our sin and His grace. Look back again at chapter 7 with me. This is a great road map of what sin and grace look like. So in verse 2 of chapter 7, we see that they're lamenting after the Lord. They're downcast over their sin. They're told in verse 3 to put away the foreign gods, put away the Baals, the Asheroth, Put away your idols. So verse 4, what do they do? They put away their idols. They repent. And they serve the Lord only. And then they fast on that day. They pour out water before the Lord. They say in verse 6, we've sinned against the Lord. We've sinned against the Lord. And then later they ask Samuel to intercede for them. They cry out to the Lord. Verse 8, the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us. They look to Him in faith. We see lament, we see repentance, we see confession, and we see faith. And then at the end of that whole section, they see victory and battle. God wins the battle for them. Sin and grace. Many people are going to come to churches, services this Christmas season. They'll come to our Christmas Eve service. Perhaps you're even here right now. Not a believer. And you think that being a Christian is about being a good person. And that a pastor's main job is to remind people of the rule book in order to be a good person, right? I need to be on my best behavior if God's going to accept me, accept me into heaven. If I'm going to get into heaven, I've got to be a good person. That's, that is what Christianity is for many people. And maybe that is for you today. And my main job is to tell you where you're, you, you've messed up. If my main job is to remind you of the rule book, then I would have resigned long ago. I don't have a job to remind you of the rule book, but to tell you, you can never follow the rule book. It's too, uh, it's too, way, it's, it's above our heads, but someone else followed that rule book in your place. Jesus Christ followed it perfectly for you. And so we have no righteousness of our own. I, I, I have no righteousness in and of myself. I look to the righteousness of another. That's the message of Christmas. That's the message of grace and salvation. That I am a sinner who need a savior, who needs a savior. And not only did he give us his righteousness, he took our punishment on the cross. It's not about being sure. Now, don't go home and say, well, Pastor Blake said that I can live however however I want. That's not Christianity either. No, when we get the gospel, when we see we can't do anything to earn it, our heart changes and we want to do good to please our Father, not to earn heaven. We can't earn heaven. And so God will help us on his terms, not ours. And so what are those terms? Well, that leads us to our last point, what God gives us what God gives us. And before we can see what he gives us, we have to admit that we fail to give him what he wants. That no king in Israel would ever f- uh, fare well here. Even the best of kings, David, would fail. And it's a very important point even for our church now as, we tr- as we're transitioning and trying to find a new pastor. No pastor will, will, will be perfect here either. I've been around long enough. You know that I do not meet that standard so we need to be reminded that any human being that leads any man who leads god's people is going to fail and his sole job is to point you to the one who didn't fail for you and it leads us to the way of free grace that there's nothing you can do to earn his forgiveness and grace there's nothing you can do there's no uh rule book that you can meet perfectly you need his forgiveness. You need his free grace. That's why, ultimately, we need to know what God gives us. Not just what he wants from us, but what he gives us. And God's solutions don't always make sense to us. And certainly, when Jesus showed up on the scene, what he was doing didn't make sense to everybody. It didn't make sense to the rulers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It didn't make sense to the disciples until he rose again. And Jesus would be the king that no one really expected. Paul writes in Philippians 2, this great, beautiful passage. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, God did something unthinkable. He put on human flesh. He came down to us. As we approach Christmas, Christmas loses its meaning if we forget what Jesus left to come to us. If we forget that he left glory of heaven and the glory he deserved from the minute he got here, yet never received the honor and the worship he never received. So we don't have Christmas without thinking about what he left, what he he didn't claim for himself, but also... We don't have Christmas without the cross. They go together. John Piper writes this amazing statement. He says, The incarnation, when I say incarnation, I mean when Jesus came in the flesh, when He came, what we celebrate on Christmas. The incarnation is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails. The incarnation is the preparation of a brow for thorns to press through. That He needed to have a broad back So that there was a place for the whip. That he needed to have feet so that there was a place for the spikes. He needed to have a side so that there was a place for the sword to go in. He needed to have cheeks, fleshy cheeks, so that Judas would have a place to kiss. And there would be a place for the spit to run down that the soldiers would put on him. He needed to have a brain and a spinal column so that the exquisiteness of the pain could be fully felt for you. Isn't that amazing? That's the point of why he came as a baby, to have all of those. It led to the cross, that he was born to die. And so as we approach that, thinking about this, this coming day, what's going to make us trust him more than all the ways we want to harness and control God? What's going what's to put you over the edge? So you're not trying to manipulate God, but you're just going to trust him. Focus on Jesus. That would be my point to you. Focus on Jesus. Focus on the power of the God-man, the power of the incarnation. If he will take is what the human king will do, he gave is what the divine king does. He gave, he gave, he gave. The good shepherd, John 10, lays down his life for the sheep. He gave all he had for you. He didn't take, he gave. As I close, me read from a professor, theological professor, Dustin Benge, says, what does the incarnation teach us? What does Christmas teach us? Number one, it teaches us that God is not a distant ruler. Are we very, so much we want a ruler to be visible. We want him to be close. So we can see and touch. The incarnation is that. He is not distant. He's near. Number two, God takes the initiative. He doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He comes to us in all of our dirt and our unrighteousness. Number three, he has an eternal plan. Number four, he reveals himself in Christ. Number five, he provides a way to himself. Number six, he demonstrates his love to us. And number seven, God loves to rescue sinners. That is the main point, that he loves to rescue you and me. So my my question for you is, will you serve this king? Will you serve this king who gave and gave? instead of taking and taking. There is nothing better in the whole world than to know and serve King Jesus. And not only that, what I read earlier from Revelation 5 is going to be true of us, that we will reign with Him. That We will reign with Him. He's a King that allows us that privilege. Let's pray together. Father, what an amazing truth that we have a king who is not just a king over us, but he's a king who, who went low for us, who served us to the point of death on the cross. And he is now highly exalted in heaven, interceding for us, praying for us, waiting for us as we wait for him to return. Father, give us strength, give us faith to trust. Jesus, more and more, to cast aside our idols, to cast aside our methods, our ways of adjusting the help that you've so graciously given us. Help us to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.